What's up, guys? In this episode, we talked with a friend of ours, Devin Guthels, a self-proclaimed math nerd, engineer, and teacher. What better way to introduce Devin than with a poem created by artificial intelligence? Devin Guthels, a woman of many trades, from nuclear engineer to teacher, she grades with a stint in rapping at the University of Florida. Her talents and skills put the great in America. With knowledge and science and rhymes that flow, she educates the youth and makes them flow. A unique blend of technical and creative mind. Her students are lucky to have her as a guide. Thank you for joining. I hope you enjoy. Self-proclaimed hot girl, engineer, <laughs> and uh, and ex-substitute teacher. Welcome, Deb. Thanks. It's uh, it's good to be here. And so, former regular teacher too, right? Yeah, I was gonna say I was I was a regular teacher for a while, more than just a substitute. <laughs> I was gonna let you correct me, and thank you. <laughs> um, so Devin studied nuclear engineering at the University of Florida. Um, after graduation, she spent a few years as a promoter and a rapper. Experiencing her 15 seconds of fame at Gator Growl, which is a really big pep rally at the University of Florida. Then she moved on and worked at as a uh, substitute teacher. And she loved teaching so much that she decided to pursue a master's in mathematics education. And then you taught math full time at one of her rival high schools. And then you transitioned back to engineering in 2019, uh, where you work for a defense contractor. And you are currently employed there. And she told me not to share much information about it, but uh, if anybody's listening and is curious to learn more about the self-proclaimed hot girl and rapper, you can check her out on LinkedIn. And uh, here I'm she really is. I'm really glad you brought Welcome up Devin. the... Uh, thanks. I'm glad you brought up my rap career. It's a little known fact about myself. Well, that's what why we have of... podcasts like this, so we can share this yeah. you know, valuable information with the audience. What year of Gator Girl was that? Ooh, was that... I took some time off after college, so it was probably around 2015. It's really when I was bringing out the mixtapes. I think it was uh, she like teamed up with Macklemore. I think that was the guy. That was right around the time when he was real famous with the uh, I got twenty dollars yeah. in my pocket. Yeah, I made a few uh, appearances and on the festival circuit. People didn't really know who I was, but if you look like on the bottom level of those uh, posters, you can see my name. Yeah, hey, it was a really fun time. Better than no print at all. <laughs> well, welcome, Devin. I'm glad to uh, talk to you. I talked to you on and off on the internet, and uh, I do miss going to class with you like every day at University of Florida in our high school sized nuclear engineering program. Yeah, I mean, those were the days just seeing the same people all day, every day, and even spending all-nighters just studying in a small library those those are a lot of times that i look back on and i miss but you know you wouldn't do it again we've come a long way since then yeah i think uh i was thinking to myself the only way i really studied was when i stayed up all night either the night before or the previous night and uh i either took adderall or vivans or this other drug called provigil and i would just cram all the information into my head 
And then uh, I did really well with that method. Actually. Yeah, I was about to say it sounds both sustainable and effective. <laughs> it was it was actually effective. <laughs> it got you through university. And sustainable <laughs> up to uh, I guess I wouldn't want to do that for the rest of my life, but it worked for me. Cool. I don't know about you, Devin. Yeah. I don't think you did the drugs, but I think you did cram like everybody else. I did cram, uh, but my drug of choice was caffeine. So I would usually make myself a coffee with at least six shots of espresso. Nice. So it had the same physical side effects of Adderall, but a little bit more jittery. Kind of looked like I was having a stroke if I did that before taking the test. But, you know, no, that's always we made fun. it through. I yeah, still that was... use that today. So. Oh, you still use those drugs today? Yeah, I, I still use caffeine today. It's, it's my, my drug of choice. Do you know what elevation it it has? It comes from. Is it like six thousand feet? Are you you're getting the specs on the elevation of the coffee bean? Yeah, I mean you can. I mean the real caffeine connoisseurs can tell at what elevation they were grown. Okay. Oh. And, and Devin's yeah, no, claiming I'm, I'm that she's easy. a real, you know, connoisseur of coffee. Uh, I think there's a difference between connoisseur and like consumer. Mass consumer. <laughs> I am a mass consumer. Okay. Fair enough. I'll take your word for it. Hey, they say uh, quantity has a quality all its own. Oh, yeah. So how intensive has some of your employments been in comparison to nuclear engineering um, undergraduate degree? So I will say I nothing I learned in school applies to what I do as a job. Nice. Um, <laughs> so I've kind of come into uh, a new section of my job. Uh, where we are looking at doing aircraft parts uh, testing and integration. So we are looking at different piece parts that are new to an existing airframe and qualifying them at, for safety of flight. So everything that goes on an airplane has to be radiation tested. So the, what I learned in, in undergrad is the smallest section of what I have to know for my, my career. So I probably study and learn just as much in my regular job as I did in college. Now I don't have, you know, the all-nighters that I had in college. I'm not studying, you know, two hours a day on top of an eight-hour class day, but there's definitely a lot of learning that goes into what needs to be done, all of the standards that you know, the, the FAA puts out there that all these entities put out there, there's a lot of a big learning curve. So I would say it's, it's pretty intensive until I get the, through that learning curve. And then it's just as much of checking the boxes to make sure that we're meeting those and, and moving forward with, with the programs that we have. So as you're working on different programs, you have to learn different parameters to work within. Oh yeah. 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 And <clears throat> so much of I've come to the conclusion that essentially college degrees are just learning how to learn. It's not learning content that well, you're going to use. That was something I was going to ask you is what kinds of classes would have prepared you best for the career you're in now? I can't think of a class that would work. <laughs> <laughs> and to be honest, like, I think the class that I use the, with the content that I use most often is as simple as calc one so i do a lot of analysis for my job um and i use a lot of calculus and that's just me like understanding how 
those basics of math can apply to materials, how they can apply to the data that we're getting in, we're getting in large quantities and how to boil that down into something that can be used and summarized for the conclusions of these tests that we do. Mm-hmm. So that is one class that will prepare me statistics is another. And I think statistics is a very underrated That's a big um, one. and not valued course. And I look at, I had a statistics class in college and it was one of the worst classes that I took. And yeah. not because the content was hard. I just had a really bad instructor and the instructor didn't really understand how it could play into the bigger role of engineering and you know the the big you know the big ideas within statistics that need to be utilized or should be utilized and finding these uh these indicators from the data i didn't have that so once i got to my job i'm having to learn that and figure out the best way to categorize the data to make conclusions from the data and to make sure that it's actually good data Uh, and then, you know, there are some classes within the realm of engineering that are necessary for for a lot of a lot of what I do. So basic physics, basic mechanics, but those are things that can kind of be learned on the job. I I really think statistics is the biggest class that is undervalued and really is really important to a variety of jobs, not just my engineering job. Yeah. I always thought that statistics was hard. I always called it fake math because it was it just seems so arbitrary. Like uh like how do you know like one one sigma is like 95% or whatever it ends up being and uh like I just I found that like binomial distribution I found it so like some guy just decided to name it binomial distribution and then and then give it that, you know, that bell curve. Yeah, I mean in but the thing is is when you take a statistics class, they teach you that there's only one way to analyze the data. And in reality, you can have the same set of data, two different people analyze it, and you get two different, two completely different conclusions from it. That was my takeaway when I took statistics classes. Wow, there are so many different ways to paint this picture with the same set of numbers. Yeah. Well, and then you have an instructor telling you that there's only one correct answer and that can't be further from the truth. And I think it's, you know, the education system in general of they want you to do something via one particular method and that's the way it needs to be done. That's, but that's not the way it should be done. If you can find another method that follows, you know, your basic rules correctly and you come up with either the same conclusion with a different method or in the example of statistics, you have a different conclusion using a different method, that's acceptable as well. Mm-hmm. It kind of cuts down on the ability of critical thinking. And I think, you know, when you're looking at huge amounts of data, like so many jobs look at now, you having one method isn't going to work. And also you have to have those critical thinking skills to even think about and determine where you're going to go with it. Yeah. Now, is is binomial distribution the right word for it for the bell curve? Did I mess that yeah. up? That is the right word. No, it is, but it's okay. a three sigma. If I'm remembering correctly, it's been you know. I think it's like it's I like ninety five percent, and then sixty eight percent is two sigma, right? Or no, one sigma is sixty eight percent, two sigma is ninety five, and then three sigma is like 
99 percent, something like that i think so something yeah. like that yeah okay p values right it has related to p values or am i population throwing... sample size oh man you give me yeah. flashbacks yeah i remember the PTSD. table and i know how to use the table if i saw it but i will say since i stopped teaching i have not used one of those statistics tables and i don't think i would have used the the table unless i was having to teach a very particular standard for kids which i think it was a very useful one especially if you know these kids want to go be an analyst or you know they want to there's so many uses for it but now it's all standardized in a computer program like there are so many powerful tools that you can use that even if i did have to know those thing if i did use a normal distribution i would have a computer program do it for me now right so that was that's something that's a recurring theme that hunter and i have been visiting is uh, how the things we learn in school or the things we just learn are becoming so outmoded both in the face of say uh standardization and in the form of uh, technology so on the one hand, we've got these what appear to be like the right way when there is no one right way. We, we should be learning a, a flexible approach to things. So like, for example, in, in high school, the skill of having to write uh, what 500 page or 500 word essay in the space of an hour is a skill that almost no one actually needs. And then um, now we've got something like chat GPT, which could potentially write us that essay for us in the space of a minute if we this, that's the, the software that just came out have you yeah have you played with ago. that that'd be fun to play so, with on here so i was just talking about that with a coworker today and he's an analyst he is highly intelligent the papers that he comes out with are incredible the skills that he has are incredible but he was talking about how you know he's tried to work with it for he applied to get a short paper uh, printed out by them in like November. And he had to get put on a waiting list because the demand for it is so high. Mm. But, you know, it could greatly increase a company's productivity. If you have these short memos that like no one really cares, you know, you're looking at a status report or you're looking at <clears throat> you know, something that's like an intro for a large paper that is, you know, not highly skilled. It's not a lot of information that you could take away some of the busy work that we have in our day-to-day -day careers, but then you're running it at the risk of, you know, the example he used is you have college students who are, or high school students who are applying to college yeah. and they're using it for their admissions essay. And so now, you know, what's the point of an admissions essay? Right. What's the point of, but I mean, there's a lot of things when you're applying to college of what's the point. They're starting, their college is taking away the use of the SAT or the ACT as a requirement because those tests are inherently biased. Yeah. Why are they, why are they biased? What do you mean by that? So the cost of the SAT and the ACT is significant. It's not super expensive. But when you have a requirement for someone to pay $75, it takes out a significant number of potential applicants for college. And then some of the questions are biased. Some of there's, and there's gonna be a bias in every exam, but right. they are saying that 
there is more bias in some of those entry exams than what is considered normal bias, standard bias. Especially if the carrot gets dangled that if you take the test multiple times, you can get a composite score. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, there are school districts that they will pay for, I, I worked at a Title I high school. So we had, you know, a, a certain percentage of our students were- A Title I high school? What does that mean? So a Title I high school is one that a certain percentage of students are, their families make a certain amount of money or less. So you have a certain percentage of students are on the free and reduced lunch program. A certain percentage of students, um, their households are at or below the poverty line. So they, the state, the country school districts tend to put more money into those Title I schools because they don't have that funding base. They have to support it a little bit more so those kids can have the same um, the same things at school. So they're not going to have people donating computers. So somebody has to provide them. Kids aren't able to bring their own school supplies. So somebody has to provide them. So the Title I school that I worked at um, had a program where every junior or senior, uh, you picked one time and they would pay for your SAT and they'd have the SAT during the school day. So that these kids who otherwise couldn't afford and I don't know how much the SAT is anymore. I think it's seventy five dollars. So if Might they could afford, more. yeah, it probably is more. I mean, it's probably a hundred dollars at this point. I, I have no frame of reference because I haven't looked on College Board in three or four years. Hmm. But they offer it for free so that these kids have an opportunity if they want it. They won't be completely written off because they can't afford to take the test, or they can't afford to give up a Saturday morning from their job to go take yeah. this test. So they have, you know, on top of having to pay the $75 or however much money, they're also losing income. And it's a very real thing that, you know, I realized I wasn't aware of when I was in high school, given, you know, my family's socioeconomic status. Yeah, yeah I remember you were really rich. <laughs> <laughs> Not rich, but, you know, my parents could afford to, to let me take the SAT and the ACT, God knows how many times. And, you know, I was thinking I would constantly get a higher score. And it's like at a certain point, you plateau and there's yeah. nothing more to give. And a lot of universities, there's so much more to a person that they want to analyze than that score. There, there might be, maybe the score is not as important as we would be led to believe. Maybe the uh, entrance and exams have done a good job of marketing themselves. Oh, 100%. I, you know, and I was, I think about this a lot because I reflect on, you know, when I was teaching and I really enjoyed it. I will put that out there. I think teaching is an undervalued profession, but you know, the way the education system is set up, it's, you have this arbitrary grading scale and it's essentially how much of the taught material can you master instead of, okay, how much, can, how many learning gains can I get? What, how can I score? It should be, how can I score a kid based on where they were to where they are now. And I think a college would be so much more interested to know the capability of a student, not just how much knowledge they're able to have. Or in a lot of cases, you have kids who, you know, kids are smart, they know how to work the system. Yeah. And, you know, 
like a river, find the path of least resistance. And if that means there are shortcuts, there are shortcuts. But I think learning gains is a great metric, but how do you quantify learning gains? How do you put that into perspective for a university who has, you know, 100,000 applicants for them to sift through and get that? That's a good question. How, how would they? And that's, that's something that, no joke, I'll wake up at two in the morning and I'm like, how could that happen? Well, that's awesome. And, you feel you pulled know, to, to think, you feel pulled to resolve those problems? I do. I think, you know, this should be a problem for not just teachers, not just administrators. Uh, this should be, or, and not just the colleges. I think this should be something that as a, as a collective, if we want to become, you know, a better country, a better world, you know, we should all be kind of thinking about these things and asking these questions and finding the solutions. It's not just up to, you know, the educators who are spending day to day with these kids. It's also, let's have some, some of the world's greatest minds answering these questions and maybe we can get some resolution with it. Do you have any experience with new college grads? I do. So my company, we have, uh, we get summer interns that are in college. Some of our summer interns are in high school, actually. And then uh, some of those summer interns turn into full-time employees that I work with every day. Okay. Do you feel like they're pretty well prepared, the the workplace, for transitioning into a professional career? Uh, I think for some of them are. Some of them, you know, college is a place to learn. So there's a learning curve of how can I take what I know and my skills and apply it to this very specific, this very specific topic and very specific job, uh, job task. I think it takes, you know, probably about three months for, for a new grad to fully be integrated into, into the job and to be able to not have someone, you know, available for any and all questions mm. but yep. you know i i think there's so much of my job that is specific that we don't learn in school and we i may have a my career may have a higher learning curve than some some other jobs sure it probably does yeah <laughs> you say it may it probably does here's the going back to when you were a teacher what were some of your biggest difficulties and obstacles as being a teacher? So there were quite a few obstacles. Um, and the first right off the bat is money. And so that's money that's put into the education system. Um, schools are underfunded. You're working with subpar materials. Um, a lot of times you don't have all the materials uh, available to you at the school, so you have to go out and purchase them. Um, another thing is, I think this is a societal problem, and, and this is just my experience. Uh, educators are not respected as a profession, and right. parents expect educators to be more than educators. Yeah. So I had to deal with, and keep in mind, I was teaching high-level kids. Um, I was teaching kids that were, you know, I would say probably 90, 95% of my kids were college bound. Um, so they were highly intelligent, but having to deal with behavioral issues because their parents would not respond is, and would not 
parent them is was an issue that I had to deal with. Yeah. And this was pre-pandemic. So I've talked to some of my <clears throat> some of my coworkers and some of my friends that are still teachers, and they said those issues continue and got worse during the pandemic and once kids were back in school. Yeah. So <clears throat> and then I think because another thing, schools are underfunded, so they can't hire as many teachers. There's not an availability of teachers. Um, so when you have my first year teaching, I had a class of 33 kids. That's, and what, that's what grade ridiculous. was that? It was, it was a pre-calculus class. I had 33 kids. That's a lot of smarties. And, and that was the panhandle? Yeah. yeah. Am I, can I ask what high school it was? I was at Choctaw. Oh, okay. So that's the rival high school, huh? Yes. So, so pre-cal, that means mostly kids who are 16, 17, 18? Yeah. So they were, I had sophomores up to seniors. Yeah. Um, and I physically didn't have, I didn't have enough desks. I didn't have enough room. I asked if I could run my class out of the auditorium and I couldn't run my class out of the auditorium. So as a first year teacher where I'm just, you know, starting to holding on for dear life. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you have, you're trying to navigate all the personalities of your students and just know. And another thing was there were no standards for me to run off of. So I'm like, well, you know, I think this is, I'm having to go off of my expertise of, you know, I know what is required to know before you come into calculus, but where are these, and it was my first year in a school district. So I'm like, where are these kids from the course before? And I'm having to kind of come up with my own curriculum. And there was, I was the only pre-calc teacher. They wouldn't, it was what? a wild ride. It was I, a wild ride. I don't remember uh, it being that had, much different for at Niceville. But did we have more than one pre-calc teacher? I, I there was only, sure. only yeah. one teacher, but she had like four or five classes and funny enough, I actually called her up and was like, can <laughs> you help me? How do I do this? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and she's still teaching the same lady? She's retired now. But oh, okay. at the time, she was getting ready to retire. And that's where my substituting days came in handy because all those teachers that we had in high school that I was familiar with, I substituted for them. Mm -hmm. I got to know them as an adult and a professional and then <clears throat> made those professional connections so that I could, you know, have a foot to stand on and not completely drown. That's an interesting topic. I think that's common across all professions is that you got to find some people to look up to and for them to kind of show you the way. Yeah. Did you, did you do yeah. the same at, uh, in your engineering job? Sort of had a mentor. So I didn't have a mentor when I started on, uh, but I have started to mentor other engineers as they come on with the company. Dang, Devin, school of hard I knocks. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just, and you know, I bring a very interesting expertise to my company. You know, I work with a bunch of engineers who, Hunter, you probably know this, working with engineers aren't always the best at communicating. Yeah, the outgoing ones, you could tell like a, introverted engineer versus an extroverted engineer because the extroverted engineer will look at uh, your shoes instead of their shoes when they talk to you. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, 
the introverted mm -hmm. engineers, it could be a small meeting with only people in your company or in your office and it, they get anxiety talking mm -hmm. to any group of people. And so I think with all of these engineers that really didn't want to, they just got so much anxiety talking to other people. It was really hard to have a mentor program. So when I came into the company and I wouldn't say I'm extroverted, but you know, I'm more can, extroverted than these guys. Right. Yes, exactly. The bar was low. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an extroverted introvert. So people think I'm extroverted, but I'm really not. Um, I have no problem talking. So I saw this gap and started to kind of work with my colleagues to create a small tour program with these intern with new hires to make sure that they're not drowning and that they have the resources they need. And even if that's as simple as, hey, you know, someone comes to me and they say, I don't know what to do with this, just finding the right person to talk to and being on that initial phone call with them. Mm -hmm. And that's a very underrated thing to do. Are people afraid to ask questions? Are you helping encourage people to ask the right questions? I think there is a fear of asking questions. I think, you know, there's this idea that if you ask a question that you're not capable. Yeah. Um, and I think, and this is something that I've seen in when I was teaching high school kids, this is something that I've seen in my current professional life. This is something that I've seen with friends that because everyone seems to know what they're doing, no one thinks that they can ask questions because they think that they're going to be seen as not as capable. And it's like, no, just asking the question when something isn't in your skill set or isn't in your, your knowledge base isn't a big deal. Yeah. I think that is a uh, that's a cultural thing. I've seen when I interface with our customers and usually the mill mil gov space we call it. Um, they're very they don't want to share everything that they know because I think there's a little bit of job security involved with their expertise. And if they oh, yeah. if they kind of give away like give a hint that they don't know the things that they're that basically gives them the job that they have, then I think they're in a bad position. Mm. I've seen that. I've said, I think it's a cultural thing with military type jobs yeah there's definitely a secret sauce that with proprietary information proprietary uh practices that definitely exists you know i definitely didn't see that in nuclear though in nuclear power when i worked at my last job uh i think they had a like nuclear power culture was uh if you like if you see something wrong you need to share it with everybody because <laughs> there are legit concerns if you well, yeah. If you don't bring it to light, and if you didn't know something, I think it was, I think they're a little bit more open than like MilGov space about saying, oh, I don't know what's going on here. Can somebody come in to actually solve the problem so we don't have to shut down our nuclear reactor? I think there's a lot more at risk with nuclear power. And when you have private companies, there's so much at risk because you're looking at future funding. And like you said, with an outage, that's money down the tubes. Yeah, like I think it's space. like half a million to a million bucks a day. When yeah. I was in when you're looking at military and government, the funding is there. Right. It, yeah. It, we just tax the, tax the taxpayers more. Exactly. And, you know, you look at the defense budget and the program and the topics that they're putting the defense, but defense budget to, and only gets bigger every year. 
Yeah. That's got to be a problem. Not a problem for <laughs> the contractors. This is fine. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking to the right person. She's incentivized to be okay with it. Devin, did you know that the military is doing its first ever audit? They started that at the Pentagon a few months ago, right? Uh, I, they might have started a certain phase of it that involves the Pentagon a few months ago, but they've started the, the audit in the Air Force, and they started it years ago. And uh, once they get it done, then they're going to spread it out to the other branches as well. But um, yeah, up until a few years ago, pre-COVID even, maybe five years ago, um, there had never been a full or any kind of comprehensive audit done of the military. So for the first time ever, it's being brought to task as to how it spends its money in every facet, really. I think I saw a story a couple months ago where they said that essentially like only 20% of funds could have been accounted for. <laughs> the rest of it, they have no yeah. idea how it was spent. Oh, man. Which is so wild to me. Well, there's also the just touching upon education again, real quick. We spend more money per student in education than the vast majority of countries. And yet we are 28th or so, 26th among the top 28 or 30 countries in the world. So there's a, there's a very big gap between how much money we're spending and the quality of our results. Oh, yeah. And I understand, you know, in the eyes of the government, they're not seeing the quote-unquote investment. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I look at, and, you know, this is me speaking as a former math teacher, how many math teachers did you have that had degrees in math? Sure. How many, and, you know, it, it's higher, it's a higher percentage in math and science, especially, you know, when you have someone, someone who's teaching like AP physics, but, you know, we're not encouraging people to get degrees in those topic disciplines in the, in the quote unquote fine arts or the liberal arts. So you don't, when you have people who are, you know, majoring in education, there are benefits to a degree in education because you learn a lot about how kids, the kids psychology, you learn a lot about kids' dynamics. You learn a lot about, you know, things that you wouldn't think of, but it's at the, there's a cost-benefit analysis to it. Right. It's at the cost of some of that content knowledge from the educators. So when you don't have a strong content knowledge, you might not get quite the outcome, quite the benefit that you would expect to get. And I can't tell you how many teachers stay for five years and then leave education because they're not being financially compensated. So you constantly have new teachers coming into the cycle. Mm -hmm. And that's interesting. We spoke very recently with a friend of mine who works up in the Capitol. He works as a legislative correspondent. So um, as part of the team that works for a congressperson, and that's what he said is the majority of people up on Capitol Hill, or at least working in Congress, as support staff are in their 20s because the turnover is so high. You can only keep it going for so long. Um, yeah. When you're putting in high hours and not getting benefits, you don't feel valued. Yeah. And, you know, this is with a lot of careers when you're entry level. And 
you know, management styles are changing. Um, I think a lot of companies are starting to figure out that, you know, in order to manage your employees well, it might not be the way that you were managed. That when you value someone and you find out what makes them tick and what makes them, you know, want to work harder, then you kind of work with that and make them want to be a better a better employee and even if that way if they have to put in more time they're going to be willing to do it because they reap the benefits of it whether it's financially whether it's emotionally whatever you have to feel satisfied in your career and you have to feel validated yeah well it seems to me that there is less of the phenomena of the company man or the company person where if the loyalty you show to your company is reflected back to you. Now, as Hunter and I just spoke about recently, the money that you make is not from working harder and harder at a single company. It's from selling yourself to another company and switching over. 100%. I, you know, I've been with my company for, for just over three years now, and my company has very high retention. And, you know, we have people who stay for, you know, 10 years and which is unheard of. Mm. I look at some of my friends from college who they're in finance, they're in uh, advertising, they're in, you know, a wide range of areas of corporate America. They're staying at a job for three years max. And, you know, even if they have to relocate, the amount of pay increase that they get is so much higher than staying, staying where they were. Yeah, I think I read a statistic that it's like the average time for someone in our age range of, I guess I could say millennials to stay with a company is like two and a half years. I've read the same thing. I think my, and, uh, my management tells me to move after two and a half years. If you have the same role for that long, then you need to think about what you're my, like my management tells me that <laughs> we always say at work, if you're not growing, you're dying. That's also and true. I said that to myself it, yeah, every day. Yeah. And it's, you know, and I'm just getting fatter they say and fatter. It in the sense of, you know, company business, but you know, it, it's also true in, in your responsibilities at work. If, if your work isn't promoting you, then it may just be maybe time to go. I sometimes think of the analogy of being in a romantic relationship of, of trying to figure out, uh, are our goals aligned? Are we making progress? Or do I have to make a difficult decision to get out of this relationship? Um, it's it's a tough decision, but and sometimes you got to take that risk. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, it is a huge risk, but the reward could be huge. And, you know, that next step, if it's outside of your comfort zone, I had a family friend tell me that you have to step outside of your comfort zone to grow. Yeah. And, you know, there's this sweet spot of, you know, stepping just out, outside of where you're comfortable, but not so far that you're drowning. The zone of proximal development is what it's called in psychology. Yeah. I've got a friend that says, uh, if you're not living on the edge, then you're missing the, and also oh, if you're not, if you're not living on the edge, then you're taking up too much. I like the first one better. Yeah. I like the first one. It comes from a dark place, I think, but <laughs> food for thought. Well, yeah, you have to be. It, it seems like in life, if whenever you get to a point where you achieved whatever your previous goal was, you have to set new goals. You can't just say, okay, I've made it, basically. 
there was an idea in ancient Greece that your goal should be to have the best and happiest day of your life to be the last day of your life because you don't want to peak at 40 or high school or something like that. You, you always want have to be, um, whatever your goalpost was, once you get there, you got to stake another one further off in the distance. You got to have a, a reason to keep going. Yeah, I agree. I think the, I think you're usually happiest when you're pursuing a goal that, you, and I think you're really happy once you get there. And then you, you, I think it happens quickly. Like after you get there, you're like, okay, what am I? Well, I, so yeah, I think, I think you almost have to have an unattainably but yet achievable goal way off in the distance because what you're happiest when you hit have those, both of those. No, well, <laughs> this platonic ideal of achievement you have to have and then you have to have i don't know what goals. that means okay don't worry about it <laughs> you have to have <laughs> the perfect goal <laughs> and then what you have to do is you have to have a, a series of closer goals and then you feel best when you hit the closer goal and you know that you're getting to that next goal and maybe it's a treadmill where you never get to that final goal unless you perfectly plan it so it's the last day of your life but you're right because if you hit what you think of as the final goal there's nothing else past that then you have nowhere else to go yeah i, agree. I think you gotta reevaluate it before you get to each goal yeah. you know so when you know that that goal is, you know, right within reach, you know, it's just you right outside of your grasp, that's when you start to reevaluate the next goal and make sure that that aligns with what you really want. And it involves a lot of introspection. And that's not always the easiest thing to do, especially with, you know, life is noisy. And so to kind of sit, sit down and tune out the noise and think about what you really want that's difficult yeah and then especially when we keep our potentially quiet moments occupied with something like social media or television you know, netflix um we have to be really conscious about creating space for ourselves to be like you said introspective yeah there's so much in life and you know i'm i'm guilty of it too where sure you know, I'm done with my day, but I can't just sit there and do nothing. There is no concept of idle time anymore. Yeah. Unless you are, you know, I'm lucky enough that I live in Colorado and I can drive an hour into the mountains and there's no cell phone reception, there's nothing. And, you know, that's the time that I can actually sit with my thoughts. Otherwise, you know, even if I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm, I'm not on my phone, there's still this like, because I know in the back of my head that my phone is there, I could, I'm thinking about, well, did I hear something on my phone? It's just, it's nonstop. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm forever having little leg vibrations that must just be a muscle twitching that I still reach for the phone. Yeah. <laughs> I used to have those all the time. It'd be in my um, pocket and I think it vibrates, but there's no notification. So my brain just really wishes I would get that notification. Exactly. I think part of it too is like our ability to connect with people. We 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 want to connect with people. We're we're social, but we now think that our only way to connect with people is through a phone, is through the internet. So when we like crave connection, that's when we start to think like we hear the vibration, we feel the vibration of our phone, and that we can just you know get that quick hit of dopamine. Yeah, I think that's, I think they've, we've been hacked. We've been hacked by the tech people and it doesn't feel good. They figured us out. 
And maybe we should just kill them all. We should go to Mark Zuckerberg's right. uh, plantation in Hawaii and uh, just burn it all down. There, I don't know what psychologists they had on staff, but those people did the perfect job of finding out how to how to get us addicted, how to get us coming back for more all the time. What did you see that documentary on Netflix about the social media presence in everybody's lives? Yeah. Where they they basically they interviewed a bunch of ex executives of all the technology companies, and the one thing they they always all these people they interviewed said about their kids was oh well i'm not i'd never allow my kid to play on the ipad or use screens because i know what we what we program them to do oh so they're pushers so they know how bad it is yeah they know how bad yeah. it is and they, they know they and they even suppressed reason. research <laughs> reports about how suicide rates went up in preteen girls after the iphone came out wow. and after social yeah. media came out like facebook namely these companies were fully aware and, you know, all these people, I, I saw that documentary or parts of that documentary as well. You know, when they leave for ethical concerns and the company has no problem or, you know, they decided to bring up their concerns and the company lets them go or puts them in a different position with less responsibilities, less money. It's, it's a huge problem. Yeah. So should I we just it, ban everything? Should we ban everything? Yeah. Oh. Are you allowed to use TikTok for your job? Or how does that work? You mentioned your job might ban TikTok or something. So we can't, they can't ban TikTok, um, but they highly suggest that we do not participate. Uh, and I, you know, it's not just defense contractors that are getting this information. It's, you know, active duty military personnel are getting this information. You have state and federal government employees that are getting this information because I think the big thing is if you have a login for your company, like if you have Outlook for your company's email and no matter what company you're in, if you're emailing, you know, any type of company proprietary information, there's the possibility of, of hacking and access. There's so many things and also i mean i just don't like the idea of yeah their learning algorithm for TikTok is like anything else we it's unlike anything else we've seen um i don't have TikTok, so so how is it different it is better than the algorithm for like facebook or um instagram and i think that article is, and, we so i sent both you guys that article about the yeah. uh, TikTok being used as a weapon and uh, I mean, it's, it's like an opinion piece, but the, what they were saying is that it's, it's the way it's different from other social media is that the product for us and Facebook and Instagram is that we're able to connect with people that we know. And then based off that, they give us like an algorithm. And, and then the difference with TikTok is that the main product of TikTok is the algorithm. So you just sign in and every action that you take, they put in as inputs into the algorithm. And then they just give you more, more content. They don't care about you connecting with people. They just want to push the content on because they, they, they because they've just figured it out. The algorithms. It reminds me of uh, of Wally, to be honest. Yeah. Where you have these people who are just like their whole life is a screen because everything is curated oh, for yeah. them, and it's like I'm sure China thinks hey, of us that way too. Yeah, and so I think you know the big fear is with TikTok. In addition to, you know, it's just an algorithm, 
that works really well is that an algorithm that's run by a foreign entity that who knows their intention and that's just you know living in a global a global economy a, you know a global space is it, that information doesn't stay here it is 100% exported to somebody else you don't know how they're using that that data but you know it's the same thing of you know my my parents wanted me to download this app that uh, tracked where I was based on my phone's GPS location. And it was a free app. And, mm. you know, it would do like, if I hadn't moved anywhere in a while and I was on a road, it would like determine like final velocity. And if I had gotten into a car crash and all of this crazy stuff. And, you know, I started to look into it. I was like, how do they make this free? And <laughs> yeah. you know, I started to dig and there's really like, there's not really advertisements in the app. And so I started to dig and turns out they take your data and they just sell it. Yeah. And so they know where you go. So it's like, for me, they're like, oh, this girl goes to, you know, the CrossFit gym and then she goes home. This is her pattern. And if she stops on her way home, this is where she stops. So we could sell her data to this third party entity and they start to bin you. And then you don't know who all these third party entities are that your data is getting sent to. And it's, it becomes, they know your habits, they know your locations, they know these things about you that I don't even like sit down and quantify. Right. Yeah. They, they might know things about you that you might not even know about yourself. You might be exactly. able to pick up on habits that you didn't, that are unconscious. Yeah. And so my parents thing was, they're like, well, you have an iPhone. They're doing the same thing. And I was like, okay, yes, they are. But I don't want to have multiple sources selling my information. Like, or, you know, if Apple is at least keeping it proprietary or keeping it internal, like it's only one entity instead of potentially thousands of entities selling my information, passing it along. And that uh, that particular documentary where all those people quit from, you know, the big social media outlets, their big thing was, why are we monetizing, especially kids' online habits, mm. where they don't have consent, you know, they're not giving consent. Yeah. So it's like, you give your, your two-year-old an iPad with YouTube, and all of a sudden, they're getting ads for things and someone is making money off of your kid. Yeah. Attention is one of the most valuable commodities in the modern day. Agreed. I read, uh, I read, so I read that article <clears throat> earlier and in it, they said that there is a phenomenon called TikTok brain. And, uh, it's a, I think they described it as something like it's a feeling of, I can't pay attention to anything right now. It's they, they have a hard time paying attention to things and there's a phrase for it. Probably so butchering any, it, but that was anything that's really over thirty seconds to a minute long, is, and that doesn't get to the point is boring now. Yeah, so the term TikTok brain is used yeah. to describe some of negative aspects associated with the platform, including lower attention spans and increased anxiety, and it can lead I mean, to I saw, addiction. According I to this GameQuitters I saw a statistic today that you know over what is it the past like fifteen years. The average attention span has gone from like over two minutes to 47 seconds. Sorry, what were you saying? So 
I saw the statistic. Today. No, you're fine. No, it's just, it was, I'm just joking around. Alex is a fucking asshole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. I'm sorry. But AI just, is here to save us. The algorithm yeah, is AI. As long save as we us. click the box that says accept and continue, we'll be okay. As long as, long as we can tell them what a bike looks like, they're going to take over. <laughs> or I can't. I can't say. I never know. I. I second guess myself on those captures all the time. I'm like, okay, there's this corner of the crosswalk. Does that count as part of the crosswalk? I don't think it matters what you select, to be honest. I've done it totally wrong, and they've accepted my input. Oh, cool. Oh, well, you must have a really good, like, FBI agent or something, because... (laughs) My FBI agent signed to me. He's like, he's super chill. Yeah, he just, like, passes you through. I've had a couple where... FBI agents? I did the same thing where I... No, I I overanalyzed the captcha, and it was like... There was like a quarter of a stoplight in the image. Right. And I clicked it and it was like, nope, not correct. But was it not correct because I clicked it or because I didn't click it? Was there another? There was also a stoplight that was facing the wrong way. And I didn't, there wasn't any lights that I could see on it. Was I supposed to click that as well? Yeah. I think the, the child slave was sleepy that day. So he didn't, he couldn't select the right ones or verify what you selected was right. The hamster stopped running in the wheel. 24 hours of work looking at captions, especially for, for a five-year-old. For a cent a day, yeah. So I got a, I got a question for you, Devin. It's kind Go of ahead. like a kind of like a science-y question. Um, and Alec, you can't answer this. Okay. Um, what, do you, what do you think is longer? All living people stacked on top of each other vertically, like toes to heads, so like seven and a half billion, eight billion people, or the diameter of the sun? Oh, wow. Whew. And if if one if you think one is bigger, how much bigger do you think? Oh my gosh! I see I see Devin calculating. Beep, I'm like boop, trying beep. to think through this, and like my brain just can't fathom the size of the sun. Right. It's same, part yeah. Of it. yeah, that's the hard part. I'll tell you that the Earth is uh, 93 million miles away from this. That's super helpful. Thank you. Just to give you a like a perception of. I'm gonna say I think the diameter of the sun is bigger than all humanity stacked on top of each other so how much bigger do you think twice so, as big, but also uh 100 times as big about a million probably i don't know probably like a 100 100 times bigger yeah it would be funny if i said i don't know the answer i do i do know the answer it's uh so if you stacked all of the living humans right now on oh, top of oh, each sorry, other, oh sorry, I was I, all the people who are alive, not all humans who have ever lived. Yeah, all the people who are alive. Is that not what you thought I said, who, Devin? I I thought you said all humans who. I don't know why I thought you said all humans that have ever lived. If it's all, well, humans I don't even know how many per- all humans that have lived. I mean, how many? So, the sun okay, is definitely Alec, way bigger. Way bigger than just the living humans. So seven. I said seven and a half to eight billion. So the sun's way bigger than all, all the seven eight billion people on top of each other, feet on their heads. How many orders of magnitude bigger is the sun? If you and you take that length of all the people stacked on top of each other, yeah. it is ten times bigger than the diameter of the sun. What? Yeah. What? Oh yeah. Mine no below. way. Yeah, hundred percent. All right, so say diameter. You guys see the screen? Diameter of oh the my sun. Gosh. Let's say in feet. Oh, I okay. So I was wrong in two different ways. Again, I was thinking the circumference for some reason, but diameter just circumference wouldn't be that much bigger. No, that much different yeah i didn't okay. i was not listening dude that that 47 seconds thing is real sorry <laughs> the average had a person 
Guess it five and a half feet. Five, so five and a half times times how many billion do we have? Eight billion? We're up to like eight billion now, right? Yeah. Yeah, eight billion. So eight billion times five and a half is what, like forty-five billion feet? I'm yeah. not a math guy. I got a calculator. Isn't that crazy? No, I know it's right. That is crazy. Because you think like celestial objects are just these enormous things that you can can't comprehend the size of. But I guess maybe we can't comprehend the size or like the number eight billion either. Oh wow, it is ten times. Maybe that's just an indication of uh, we got way too many fucking people on the. Well, I mean that has been a discussion for a long time. I behold the the five and a half feet thing might be really incorrect because how many children are there as a proportion of the living people? And I don't know if the average height. Okay, well, say two feet. Okay, there's more people than there are feet in the diameter of the. This is true. Well, yeah, just interesting fact of the factoid, and there, and Alec, I I shared that with you uh, a few mm-hmm. podcasts ago, which I don't remember. That's okay. The TikTok brain, bro. I have had a or lot of head second. trauma. I've had a lot of head trauma, and I cannot remember things very well. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> I don't know about the remembering things, but the head trauma. Yeah, yeah, I was dropped on my head as a baby. So I, I got some some other questions for you, Devin. Um, so what was it like being a girl in engineering, and <laughs> nuclear engineering in particular? And is it different? Was nuclear different than Wait, sorry, than what you honey, did you say, what was it like being a girl or was it like being the girl? Yeah, it was pretty close. Right. I think there was yeah. uh, two other girls and I think they were dating each other. <laughs> Good for them. I don't know about that, but there, yeah, there was <laughs> three of us. But it is a very interesting experience and i and i think the biggest thing was there were times where i did not feel like i was the only woman in a group but then there were times where or and i didn't feel any different than you know everyone else in the class right but then there were times that i could tell that the response i got was not because of my capability or because of the question that I asked, but simply because I was a woman. So I think the perfect example was there was one course that we took um, that we got put, it was essentially, you know, all a group project. And this professor never even looked at me during a lecture. Um, And it wasn't just because, you know, Do you feel comfortable naming who that was? What was his name? What class? Dr. Dugan. Oh, Dugan. Yeah. I like Dugan. So he looks over you because you're a woman? (laughs) I mean, but he was, he was older. And so he wouldn't look at the women in the class. If I asked, if I raised my hand to ask a question, it's almost like he wouldn't look and he would ignore. But I think the thing that really kind of stuck out to me, and Hunter, you might not have noticed this at all. I was probably drunk too, so. I mean, when you have a two-hour break before a 5 p.m. class on a Friday, like, what do you think we're doing for the two hours before going to class? How do you not yes, drink, definitely right? Definitely not drinking yeah. Fireball. Double-fisted Fridays, where <laughs> they're, it's right across the street from the classroom. But he, it was the fact that, you know, we're in, he made groups for this group project. He put all of the women in the class in a single group. Did he really? I didn't even notice that. Yeah. I don't recall that. It, that's that's wild. 
he and he picked the groups and he put you guys all in a, in a group together yeah yeah he did and it's something that i don't think he would notice if there weren't the other things compounding so you know we would go to his office hours and you know we would have and one of the girls that was in our group highly intelligent like she she was and probably still is way smarter than i am and uh she would go ask him a question and it's almost like he wouldn't give her the full answer and then we would send one of the guys from our group to ask the same question and we'd get a different answer hmm. and it was just it was almost like he felt uncomfortable if he spread the girls out and that other people would be uncomfortable to work with a woman and it's like that's not the case mm. at all oh, so he's like it just, real old yeah it just felt more uncomfortable that he put us all in the same group and like he didn't want to have to talk to girls more often than he needed to and <laughs> i it that was something that really kind of stuck out to me that i was like you know what like sexism still does exist and you know there is this there is not a gender there's a gender equality gap and so then you know you go into teaching and it's female dominated like you're lucky yeah. if you have a a man in your department luckily you know in math and science you tend to have more men in your department than like the english department the english department had zero men yeah um so you know you don't notice it as much there uh but moving forward to the company that i work for now it is you still see some of it and i always you know i always thought you know what it's only going to be the older guys right it's a generational thing where you know the guys who are 60 70 years old are used to women being the administrative assistants in an engineering office or in a technical discipline but i think because those men existed some of those ideologies still sneak their way into some of the younger generations and it is interesting to it's really interesting to sit in a meeting and you look around and you are the only woman in the room and you have these men who are you're sitting at the same table as all these men and you know they're some of them are your age some of them are older um but i've had instances where i've had men who confuse me with another woman in my office simply because we're women she's, she's they, one of those she's one of those it, with a female part yeah it's you know we look nothing alike our names are nowhere similar um but you know they ask you about something and i'm try to politely as I can say, I'm sorry, but that's not me. But to be confused simply because you are a woman with one of the only other women in your office, or you try to talk during a meeting and you get talked over. Yeah. Because, you know, you're the only woman at the table or to purposely not use someone's name or to say it incorrectly because you haven't proven yourself. You're new to <clears throat> this department or whatever and that's yeah, some gaslighting bullshit it is if, if it that's is wild. The case. yeah i have a coworker who she has a doctorate degree in physics like highly intelligent she's already proven herself as a doctor and 
her name is like is on an email that <clears throat> I've sent to somebody and they purposely say her name wrong and then say they can't find her email address so that she's not a part of the part of the discussion anymore. Oh, that's pretty petty. And it's it's so interesting and it's just it's so there for a while it was very frustrating to have to prove myself. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you can have the qualifications. And I know, you know, a lot of women go through this as well. It's not just me. I'm not the only the only experience of this, but feel like you have to prove yourself so much more than someone who than than the man in the room who you know they might not have the experience the gpa from college they might not have all of that but you know simply because you're a woman you have to you have to prove yourself but i will also say that i've interacted with some people and especially you know people you know within my company um that they really want to make sure that one my voice is heard knowing that there is this this issue of you know women not being heard in a technical discipline being a minority so and they know that i you know i have that skill set and so they they check in and make sure that do i feel validated and valued within the, my company within you know the environment that i'm working in and that's really reassuring to know that there are still people like that that want to make sure that women aren't just kept quiet, even, especially if they have that expertise. Yeah, it seems like bad management and business practice, not just from uh, an ethical and empath empathetical perspective, but from purely like productivity standpoints, you, you want to have everybody, you know, being able to communicate as openly and productively as possible. So to play mind games of spelling people's names wrong so that they're not included in productive conversation is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it gets really petty. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, I tend to look out for other people and it, but then you also see it with, you know, you'll have an intern and simply because this person is an intern, they're not included on an email conversation when it's, you know, their project that it that we're discussing. So I think there are just some baseline assumptions of a lack, a lack of experience means you don't have quality input. But then for some reason, there's this assumption that women don't have the experience. And yeah. I think it doesn't matter, like if you are a man or a woman, you got to look out for the people who who need to be involved and who have a valued opinion. And I think even if, you know, it's a small, a small opinion, if they feel valued, they're going to continue to provide better input yeah. and you're going to get a better quality product no matter what you're working on. Yeah. And including people from different walks of life means that you might have insights that you wouldn't otherwise have. It, it, it includes a wider potentiality. Yeah. Um, yeah. People say, Sorry, go ahead. go ahead. No, please, you, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, I was going to say that diversity of thought, um, you know, it is diversity of thought. So it doesn't have to be like different types of people. But I think more often than not, diversity of thought is largely driven by a very different background. And so I think it's a lot different being a female than it is a male. It's a lot different being an Asian person or a white person or a black person. And I think the more 
diversity you have, like of backgrounds, I think that will inevitably lead to diversity of thought. And the more different types of thoughts you have going into a project or work or whatever, I think the more valuable it becomes. I completely agree. I want to clarify that we ultimately want diversity of thought, but it's very influenced by diversity Diversity of experience. Yeah. Diversity of experience, diversity of people. Yeah. All of it. And we also need to be able to have conversations intentionally differing from other people in values and still being able to respect and even like them because it's the, it's the, uh, it's um you know you you you're bringing together these different elements to create something stronger so you know bronze being what tin and iron so for for us to be able to make a better material it's got to be forged in the fire of of uh of of you guys understand the metaphor i'm trying to make yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no Sorry. i agree and sometimes it's you know it's an uncomfortable conversation late. it's late for alec <laughs> It's yeah, it's it's a topic that I really like to um, revisit in multiple in ongoing conversations is that um, we need to be able to have conversations with people we don't agree with and still be able to respect that person. And it doesn't seem like it's a skill set that is either widely practiced or known or no, valued. I, I, I agree. I think the way we've developed as a society doesn't allow that anymore. And everything is hyper, everything is hyper emotionalized. So you watch, you know, a panel on TV and yeah. it always ends up two people or start yelling at each other or the thoughts are all so similar that they just like hype each other up. So people think that that's the only way that you should have a conversation is that you all agree and you all just amp each other up and it this idea amplifies, then you have, you know, pockets of, of similar thought. There's not discussions. I can't think of a time in college that we had a discussion of two people, just, you know, different viewpoints talking about the same thing or talking about the same topic. And I took five or six anthropology classes. I was an anthropology minor. So we should have had these opportunities to be able to you know, have a edu- or an educated discussion. But can, there. can we focus on that for a second? So you majored in nuclear engineering and you minored in anthropology. Yeah, and, I did. and then you went back and were like, ah, that's not enough. I'm going to get a master's in education next. And then become a high school teacher. <laughs> yeah. And, then, so... and, now, and now you do, now you uh, help, I don't know, do some crazy stuff for the Department of Defense. So I took one anthropology elective freshman year of college and I was like, you know what, this is pretty interesting. And I think I really, I really like understanding like how culture can influence a person's belief system and how that forms the world that we have today. So yeah, I ended up taking five or six anthropology classes just so that I could understand people. And I think that helped a lot with my time being a teacher. I think it helps out now that I'm, I'm not a, a program manager, but I am a program lead. And so I'm working with and leading people. So knowing that 
where they come from, knowing things about them helps me be a better leader for them. I think it's just a very undervalued, a, a very undervalued topic that, you know, could make a big difference. I had no idea you're pursuing that at the same time as, uh, you know, as we suffered through reactor physics, easy classes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there, it was super interesting and provided I needed a brain break some days, you know, yeah, you need just, a cleanser. Yeah. And, you know, I love math. I am a self-proclaimed math nerd. Um, and my, my students knew it too when I was a teacher. All they had to do if they didn't want to do work for the day was bring up the Fibonacci sequence and I could go on for 45 <laughs> minutes about how cool the Fibonacci sequence is. Or, you know, just some very cool things about math. But understanding people and culture was just as interesting. Yeah, Devin, you got a really interesting intersection of of studies and interests. Yeah, I I like to say that, you know, I like my job, and you know, I like engineering, but my job isn't, and the nerdy side of me isn't, you know, the whole the whole picture, the whole, you know, part that makes me happy. I don't want to have my job be my life. So by having some of these other interests and hobbies, you know, I can I can make a full life out of this life that I have. I agree. Amen. What other interests and hobbies do you have outside of work? So I think the big thing I have an interest in is, you know, living in Colorado, you're pretty outdoorsy. Yeah. So just, and I think it really helps with, you know, appreciating nature and the world that we have um and you just get to tune out everything yeah you know we i we regularly go hiking camping saturday i was out snowshoeing and just shutting it all out and just appreciating small moments yeah getting out of the screens getting out of the office and yeah yeah and you know i would say over the past few years just given you know, the U.S. climate, uh, political climate, you can't help but have an interest in politics. Um, and there are days where it's like, I can just go full bore into, you know, a political topic and writing senators and congressmen to make sure that these things, you know, become, become an important piece of legislation or that, you know, people are being heard. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's, a, it's not a hobby, but it's, you know, something of interest. It is an interest. Outside of work. It's almost like a responsibility. Some uh, yeah. county fathers might call it a responsibility. Yeah. Oh, not 100%. Everybody takes. Yeah, I don't even know who my representative is. That's how bad I am. <laughs> I know who my rep was. Who's Florida? Who's the oh, president? Wait, yeah. President of Florida? Yeah, who's the president mean? of Florida currently? Oh, I don't know. Was it Johnny Depp or something? Oh, I, thought right. was, I thought it was uh, Florida. Who was the one guy? Kid Rock, did Kid Rock win the election? I think he's. Up I think Kid the Rock's block. the president in Tennessee. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. I can choose the two. So, uh, going back to spending time on screens, Devin, you ever watch the YouTube channel Number File? I do not. I am not a YouTube oh. person. Okay. All right. Well, they. I mean, their whole thing is they uh, get like doctorates in mathematics, and they ask him about some concept. And I've learned about so many different crazy out there 
number things that I never would have thought would have picked my interest because I am not a math person. Um, yeah. But but to learn about something like Graham's number, where you take like you just like stack exponents on top of each other over and over and over again, and you get until you get some absurdly high number. Have you heard of Have you guys heard of Graham's number? It's yeah. It's just I I haven't watched the video recently enough to be able to tell you about it. But these uh, mathematicians who uh, you know they're working in the realm of numbers almost purely are so excited to be able to share these mathematical concepts. And because they're educators, they share them very well, and then they get animated. Um, and uh, some, and so they they just like to delve into these ideas of like, if you follow these um, concepts, or if you have these fundamental rules, and you play around with them, what ends up being some of the results? Um, and, you know, an introduction to that might be something like an impossible number. If, if you don't have any idea of what an impossible number is, uh, when you're initially introduced to the idea, it sounds like a ridiculous gimmick, but then lo and behold, it can have real world consequences when you take this supposedly impossible idea. That's, I mean, that's all interesting. I have no idea what uh, Graham's number is or impossible number. Well, impossible numbers are, uh, it's the square root of negative one. That's imaginary. Imaginary numbers. Sorry, I'm getting things confused. <laughs> it's the letter I. But, yeah, I'm but this person. is a whole like YouTube channel. I know what i'm doing when i can't sleep i will just stay <laughs> up all night and i will just watch you know eight hours of this it's a serious rabbit hole um because they always link to they're like oh if you're interested in that you should watch this other video that's yeah. related to graham's number it's like well i don't know enough about graham's number now hunter could you bring <laughs> up graham's number real quick because i want to make sure that that's also a real thing and i didn't make it up like impossible numbers is it like graham cracker i think g-r-a-m no i think there's no h i think it's g-r-a-m-a there's an same wrong in all counts an immense number that arose as an upper bound on the answer of a problem in the mathematical field of ramsey so what is it, just a giant number it's just a giant number but uh to watch the video of how they develop how big numbers can be you know they talk about the atoms of the universe and i think this is bigger than that yeah definitely something to look at i for me i would fall asleep at 3 a.m. if I reading it yes but listening to people who are talented educators who are passionate about the topic um, and watching some good art cartoons it's engaging that's cool thanks thanks for that Alec yeah thanks for thanks for subscribing hit like to subscribe please so I got uh, I mean I don't know what else we want to hit on here but I have a question another question for you Devin is uh, if we had somebody on who would you be interested in it's a great question. Ooh, you can email us later good, if you want. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna have to email you. I'm gonna have to do. It doesn't have to be like a name of, of a specific person. Maybe like a profession you'd be interested in learning about, or I don't know, an, like art. My brain's also dry. I'm, I'm, <laughs> kind of blank right now. <laughs> Anything. I mean, it could be like real estate developer or what know, kind like of a McDonald's do you podcast? Do you currently listen to podcasts, Devin? Is there anything you're really into at the moment? So That's there a are a couple question, of podcasts. Though that I listen to. Um, one that I love uh, is this one called The Dollop. Mm. And it's two guys. Uh, one is a comedian and one is just this regular dude. They tell a historical story that one of the comedian has never heard. And they're obscure American history stories. Oh, great. Um, and then 
you know, they have another one where they read a newspaper from a specific day in uh, US history with a guest and they and they read it. <clears throat> I also like a lot of middle class women in America listen to true crime podcasts. Nice. Living life on the edge. I thought you were releasing exactly. a podcast called Middle Class Women in America. That would have been <laughs> interesting. That might be an interesting one. Um, or just, you know, female experience. But uh, I like to listen to some ones that the Boston Globe does a lot of really good podcasts. Um, and, you know, they have a bunch of of people who it's their full-time job just to research for that podcast. So I would say I have, you know, a variety that I listen to. So I, I didn't, I thought true crime podcast was like a podcast, but apparently it's a whole it's a genre, genre yeah. of crime oh, yeah. whole genre. called true crime. So what is there like fake yeah. crime? Well, apparently. you don't, if you don't know if it's true until you get the verdict, right? It's just potential, I guess. Yeah. Dang. Is it true that only that mostly women listen to the, yeah, that... there's been no, it's like you look at the statistics of these and it's a high percentage women who are listening to true crime. And that's so crazy to me. You know, it, it it's very interesting. Because it's like we're like in general, women are more likely to be attacked on the street and you know, you think like they're the ones that are being taken advantage of, but at the same time, women fucking love the true crime podcast where they have serial killers and rapists and all these crazy stuff. It's almost like a well, shadow. It's, a it's like a shadow of the, of the female culture in America. It's a safe, um, adrenaline rush. Mm. When you think about it, like you listen to these crazy situations and it's this safe adrenaline rush. And then, you know, you keep wanting the adrenaline rush or for me there's been a couple where it's like i know the story on tv and i just i want to know so the boston globe did one on a gator great one of our most famous football players aaron hernandez he's one of my favorite yeah and so listening to that podcast was so interesting and maybe this is like someone that you guys could talk to would be like a psychologist, hmm. someone who kind of studies the human mind. And because, you know, this, maybe this is my interest in anthropology and people. I want to know like what leads a person to do that? Is it family background? Is it, and you know, in the case of Aaron Hernandez, it's CTE that, it, in addition to a number of other factors, but that was a case where I was just like, and it was so publicly talked about. I had to know what happened. Mm -hmm. You talking about with her, Aaron Hernandez? With Aaron Hernandez, yeah. Did you see his documentary on Netflix or the documentary about him on Netflix? Uh, that came out a few years ago, right? Yeah, right, right yeah. around the time of Tiger King. I think. Yeah, I saw that. I, you know, I binged Tiger King. I, I did too. I, I love Tiger King. Tiger King is just such a wild story. Fucking Carol Baskin. You guys, Alec, Baskin. Alec is in Gainesville right now. He's like down the street from her. Yeah, who's that? I got the gator up there. Beep, beep, beep. There. Go Gator. Yeah. Go Gator. Uh, yeah, I should go say what's up to Carol. What if we had Carol Baskin on? I would love she's to have Carol alive. Baskin Yeah, she's still alive. She's still alive. Oh, and man. her husband was found last year in Costa Rica. Alive? alive no way really yes. i didn't know that yes he just that blew just my came mind out the other day 
<laughs> we all thought she killed him. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Maybe we didn't believe find... her because she's a woman. And we listened <laughs> or... to this like gay converting crazy man she... in Oklahoma who <laughs> or, or did she find some runaway in Costa Rica and say, Listen, I'll pay you X amount of dollars to say that you're my husband. No, I think they like confirmed it. They had him do like I haven't what, read is the floor. It a conspiracy? No, it's it's conf- it's confirmed. It's come out from a couple of news outlets. Right. See, Carol Baskin, husband. That found? story was bonkers. It was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I binged the whole thing in I think two days because I was locked in my room for COVID reasons. It's an easy easy story to binge. <clears throat> it was that was just like so many things like the stars aligned for that that series to come out. <laughs> it was so yeah. bizarre. <laughs> And bizarro world in America, and then also everybody's stuck in their house, having to do something, and it was just spread like wild. Yeah, I don't think if I had been locked in my house, um, I would have binged it all in one day, or I would have watched it like the week it came out. Right, probably would have taken a few weeks or months before I finally got to it. But there's nothing like people who will do anything for the spotlight, and then you compound that with potential animal cruelty and and beautiful um, animals i mean tigers yeah. are pretty sweet oh yeah tigers are dope yeah i almost spent my i'm gonna say almost but i considered spending my paycheck from the government on a baby tiger <laughs> oh my god in ohio it was i was in florida at the time i was at my uh, mom's house for like two months because uh my son's daycare was closed and i didn't have i couldn't work and take care of my kid at the same time and uh and I was really cool. You can buy it back then, like two years ago, you could just Google buy baby tiger. And I mean, obviously didn't do it, but it was like 600 bucks for a cub. Oh my God. I could have bought well, two. Because once they get too big, they don't want them at like the Gulf Breeze Zoo or whatever it was. They, I mean, what, they the Gulf about... Breeze Zoo was taking tigers in? No, or maybe it was somewhere in Alabama. They had a, like a baby tiger thing where you could go up and you could like spend an hour playing and petting and feeding these baby tigers but when they get too big they can't just have they don't have room right. for like 30 full-grown tigers at these wildlife yep. sanctuaries they can i can so imagine gonna, how much they yeah. gotta eat too that's a lot of meat i mean watch tiger king when <laughs> buying expired meat biting arms <laughs> off and shit there's some wild spots even still in the united states of america it's yeah well, I've, so I follow somebody on Instagram. Her name is Safari Sammy, and uh, I would like to have her on the podcast. And she, it's a big cat sanctuary, and I'm pretty sure it's located at Gainesville. It's called, uh, I think, Sammy. like singlevisioninc.org. I know there is a big cat sanctuary right outside of Gainesville, um, but I've never been. And you can feed the cats, the animals. Single Vision Inc. You're right. Yeah. Melrose. Yeah, that's just outside of, at a, this must be it. So, Alec, you can go walk over there. 50 bucks oh, for an hour. 50 that's it? You think that's cheap? Yeah. Kevin's making money in Colorado, dude. No, no. I'm not making a ton of money. Um, but... <laughs> Defense contracting, you're doing all right, probably. <laughs> no, I just... I'm expecting, like, you know, 250 300 But I also, like... A bug on my... I will spend money for wildlife protection for, you know... Helping out the animals. Word. So I've yeah, uh, it's I'm it's getting late for me. I'm getting sleepy, guys. Me too. But I have I have one last question, Devin. Is uh, since you talked about making a bunch of money, um, what do you <laughs> what do you think you have to earn 
to be in the top 1% in the United States. And, and, and we're talking top 1% average salary. I think it's, I, it's bullshit. You, you, pick, you pick bullshit games and questions. Honey. <sighs> They're interesting fact, interesting questions. What do you think, Devin? The statistics are all fucked up, Devin. Don't believe it. Okay. Top 1%. <laughs> yeah. I would say probably like a million dollars a year because we look at, you have a few people who make billions of dollars, but there are only so many people. You're so smart, Devin. I asked Alec that question the other day, and he said, he said $120,000. It was, uh, uh, it's, I'm sorry, Alec. I'd, I, w- I would have guessed like 300000 but the answer is numbers don't add up. Is like $880,000 to be in top 1%. I just look at the sheer number of celebrities, and then you bring in the influx of. Thank Devin's thought about this. Social media influencers who are making six figures a year, which blows my mind. Oh, but, that, yeah, OnlyFans girls, they make a bunch. Of, but here's, yeah. here's the my, top 1% of those, top 0.1 million so, bucks a month. My approach was go into any social circumstances where you're probably going to have a relatively high likelihood of a random sampling of people. So that could be a drinking establishment, that could be the bar probably not public transportation um uh, or not a bar but a sports event if you and if you go to these places and if you're telling me that one out of a hundred people earns a million dollars i don't know i just hang out with too many poor people i guess i think it also depends on the city in which you're living so you know i look at if i were to go up to denver well and maybe denver skewed because cost of living in denver is insane but you know, if you were to go into a shopping center or a grocery store, I would think it's probably pretty likely that, you know, only and because Denver is so expensive, I would say probably only five people in there, or probably five out of 100 would be making over 750. Now, if I were to go into a or go into a grocery store in a city that, you know, is not as expensive as Denver, it's a little bit more on the average uh in terms of cost of living yeah i think i think a million would you'd only find one out of 100. so if you know gainesville you think about it it's mostly college students professors people who work at the hospital it's relatively middle class living in gainesville cities is going to be a little bit different but don't the majority of people live in suburbs and yeah so so this is this is different than uh median Median and average are different. So the all the stats yeah. I see when I Google it is they give you the average salary. So if you search top one percent right. income, they give you the average salary. I can't find any okay. good data on median. Right. So, I, so think, the I average think median salary, would give you a different answer. The average salary to me is so high because the billionaires and the the mega earners pull up the average. Yeah, hundred percent. I think it's if more you, yeah. unevenly distributed the average. If you if yeah. you took the top thirty million earners in the United States, what what is what are they actually earning? Well, this is so I or have the income. So this is saying top one percent income by age. Man, I have this book. I don't know. I guess the more I talk it out, the more I'm getting convinced that the top thirty three million people in the United States earn upwards of a million dollars. No, three million. Three. Wait. Oh yeah, one percent. There you go. Yeah. Wait. Okay. So three. Yeah. So here, yeah, listen, I'm looking at the uh, top one percent individual income by age in the U.S. and top one percent twenty five is one hundred sixty thousand. 
35 is 350, 45 is 420, 55 is 500,000. So this must be looking at median, top 1% median income instead of average, because these don't average out to 880 or 820, whatever. Right. Yeah, those don't average out to 880. But yeah, just interesting question. Going to a rabbit yeah. hole here. All comes down to statistics, which, you know. <laughs> wow, full no circle. Right. Full circle. <laughs> like a magician. Self-proclaimed math nerd and sorcerer. <laughs> well, I think that's it. Thank you, Devin. I thought that was a very insightful conversation. I very much appreciated you uh, coming on and talking with us yeah. tonight. Thanks for having me. This is this was a cool experience. First podcast. Appreciate it being with you guys. Nice. First of many, hopefully. Yeah, thank you so much for coming yeah. on, Devin. No problem. All right. See you guys. Bye. Bye.